The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Lord, it is easy for us to say that we praise your righteousness. And easy for us to say that we delight in your love. And easy for us to say that it is in Christ alone. But Lord, it is difficult at times for us to get our heart and our mind on the same page. And I pray, Lord, that today as we are studying your word, we would do so in such a way that we would not be like a practical atheist, hearing truth, but not living it. God, I ask that what I am doing this morning would be exactly what Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about when he said that preaching is nothing but theology on fire. I pray that as we are going to be digging into something that is rich in theological depth, that you would help it to be rich in value and you would help the people to see this is not some arbitrary information, but this is life-giving truth. Lord, I pray that today we would see that this points us to the treasure of heaven, your only Son. And God, I ask that today as we see Him, we would be more clear in our mind about what He came to do and that we might worship Him more correctly and more fully and that our lives might reflect that as we display our love for Him by obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you have a last will and testament? Uh, Recently, I've been looking into our will and discovered very few interesting things. Uh, For example, I discovered that the oldest known will that was ever written is about 4,500 years old and was excavated from Cahoon, Egypt. When the New York Times reported about this after its discovery, it noted that this document was actually shockingly modern. It actually looked very much like what we understand when we talk about a will, even down to the fact that it had two signatory scribes, like we would have our modern notaries. The shortest will that was ever recorded was from India. It's only three words long, and it says, all to wife. I'm sure the wife was very happy about that. But unreasonably so, the longest will that is on record was from the daughter-in-law of the famous explorer, Captain James Cook. And it clocks in at exactly 1,066 handwritten pages. It was given to the magistrates in England. A will is a very significant thing. It is significant because a will answers the very simple question, who gets what? Now let's turn our attention to the Word of God, and our big picture series that we are doing right now, which began by considering the basics of the gospel. And then we dug down a little bit deeper on different aspects of the gospel, considering, for example, the Emmanuel principle, the fact that God desires to be with us, the truth of divine sovereignty, and as it relates to human responsibility. We looked at the roles of Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. Today, we are continuing to dig down on the very significant aspects of the gospel, but one that lays at the very root of it, namely, the covenants. The format of this series has been to start every sermon in Genesis and to culminate or land the plane in Revelation. And each time, we trace a theme through the Bible from beginning to end. But now, we have arrived at the most foundational theme that runs through the entire Bible. 
There's nothing more prevalent or significant in terms of understanding theology than understanding the covenants. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, the doctrine of the covenants lays at the root of all true theology. So what do I mean when I speak about the covenants? There are many ways that people have attempted to define the word covenant, but I think my favorite definition that I've ever heard actually comes from someone very nearby, my good friend Matthew Shores, who preaches over in Queens. He defines it this way. He says, covenant conditions, creator, creature, communion. Obviously, he loves alliteration. That's five in a row. What that means is very simply this, that God uses a covenant to make conditions so that the creator and the creature can be unified in communion. A few weeks ago, we considered the fact that the Bible is all about God with us. Covenant is the way that God sovereignly made it possible to dwell with us. Without the covenants, we would all be doomed to destruction. Covenants are special promises that God sovereignly and unilaterally bestows upon a select person or a select people. The author of Hebrews explains what this looks like in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, which says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope Set before us. Now, there's a lot there in that text, but what I want you to take away from it is this God unilaterally makes a promise. He is the one who approaches the man, He is the one who takes the steps to guarantee that this relationship will exist. In short, God made promises not by guaranteeing by something else, but He made promises by His own name, and He ratified and guaranteed it by His own character of sinless perfection and not even having the ability to lie. Like a will, the covenants explain who gets what. It would be impossible for me this morning to preach all of the intricacies of the covenants, so my aim is very narrow this morning. I have three targets that I'm aiming to hit. First, I want to consider the importance and of having clarity and the importance of deep study of the covenants and how that results in specific doctrinal distinctions. Secondly, we're going to trace the progression of the covenants throughout the Bible. And finally, we are going to see how all of these promises of the covenants find their yes and amen in Jesus by the institution of a new and better covenant in his blood. Or if you want a simpler version of taking note for taking notes, we'll look first at distinction, second at progression, and third at fulfillment. We begin with distinction. There are many people here today who have probably never thought very deeply or seriously about the nature of the biblical covenants. But the way that somebody views a covenant from the Bible will shape and understand many areas of your theology. 
we have a lot of questions that we have to answer as Christians. For example, should we baptize infants or should we only baptize believers? Should we practice the Sabbath? Are unsaved spouses, people who are married to believers, are they part of the covenant community of God or are they not? Should we reject any images or depictions of Jesus as a violation of the second commandment not to make graven images? Or is it okay for us to have Jesus on the screen in a movie, somebody representing him in a film? Should we have a local church autonomy or should we have a centralized authority like a pope or a bishopric or a presbytery? Should we read the Old Testament and actually apply those things to our lives? Or is the Old Testament now completely null and void without purpose? What should our relationship be to modern Israel? Is the Old Covenant law still binding on us? Will there be a new temple that will be built in Jerusalem where there will be a reinstitution of animal sacrifices? These questions and many, many, many more are difficult to answer if you do not have a firm understanding of what God is doing throughout the biblical covenants. But if you answer in your own heart what it looks like for these covenants to be pieced together, then all of these questions are quickly answered. It would be difficult for me to express just how much understanding the covenants affects your overall understanding of the Bible and even your overall understanding of Jesus and what he desires from the world. And not only that, it's very practical in the sense that it details very much what we are supposed to understand about what we as Christians are called to do and how we are called to live. So yes, knowing your stuff in this area really matters. However, I also want to guard against something that often arises for those people who love studying the covenants, which is something called tribalism. I want to guard against this kind of disunity because I believe there is much that arises when we dig this into this particular theology for one reason or another that I find to be displeasing to God. There is a spectrum that exists when you Uh, when it comes to ways people understand the covenants. On the far end, you have something called dispensational theology. On the other end of the spectrum, you have something called covenant theology. And somewhere in the middle, there's something called new covenant theology or progressive covenantalism, which is the standing of this local body and myself. Uh, This is the position that I will be presenting today. However, I want to say that there is much that I have learned and can learn and will continue to learn from people who are on both ends of that theological spectrum. Uh, On December 14th of 2017, one of my heroes in the faith passed away, R.C. Sproul by name. Now, I live-streamed his funeral about a week later, and I watched the hour and 27 minute long procession of people who came forward to declare their great love for this man and how he had served the Lord well for them and in their lives. I live streamed that funeral and was thankful to see John MacArthur present, not only in the crowd, but as one who gave the eulogy. Now these two men are powerhouses of preaching for the Lord. And these two men could not possibly be farther away from one another in terms of their understanding of the covenants. R.C. Sproul, deep into covenant theology, and John MacArthur, probably the one faithful Calvinist voice that is most prevalently pushing dispensational theology. These two would often joke about this together when they were in public together. They would prod one another about the craziness of their, the way they, they think the other person sees this. And they would use this as a way to say, even though we disagree, we still care for one another. And nobody would ever doubt that these were true friends and true allies for the gospel. In a similar way, 
I want to encourage you to develop firm convictions in terms of the covenants. I don't want you to see this as a reason to avoid study. Those two men dug down deep into this theology and found their grounding from their biblical convictions. I want to encourage you to do the same. And if you want to study, I encourage you to listen to sermons or podcasts or or good books that will help you. If you want to find some good resources, talk to me. I would love to give you some good stuff. But in doing so, I want you to avoid the us versus them sentiments that can easily arise in your heart. And I say this because this is certainly one of the most contentious areas of biblical theology, probably second only to the doctrines of grace. So at this point, let's jump into the covenants as we see them in the scripture, and let's trace this through the biblical narrative together. We begin in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, and here we come to the first controversy. There are many who believe that there was a covenant made with Adam and others who do not believe this is true. Now, we simply do not have time today to go too deep into the arguments for and against, but I will simply say that it does contain covenant language. It does not say that it is a covenant. So wherever you fall on that, I'm totally comfortable with it. But I will say that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it does show covenant language when it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Regardless of whether or not this fits the criteria of a covenant, it definitely does have bearing on us. This command that was made to Adam wrought cataclysmic tragedy on everyone in this room and everyone else who has lived after Adam. For as it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, in Adam all die. When he ate the fruit of that tree, Adam died spiritually that very day. And he ensured that all of his offspring who were ever born from his body would be born with that very same spiritual condition. It is because of Adam that we are all sinners by nature. But it is because of our own hearts that we become sinners by choice, so that no one is without excuse. One chapter later, in Genesis chapter 3, God makes more promises, and now he makes promises to the serpent, and to Adam, and to Eve. This is after they have sinned. Most significantly, God promised the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But we need to slow down for a second and do a quick language lesson that I think will help us through the rest of the sermon. In Hebrew, the word that is translated here as offspring is the word Zara. And that word has already been used six times up to this point in the book of Genesis. And that word is the word seed. This is the word seed. And the reason that that is significant is because it is talking about a specific thing when it is speaking about offspring. This is where it gets incredibly interesting. So without being graphic, women do not have seed. Yet God is making it clear that the promised one who was going to come and redeem and restore all that was lost in the fall was lost, uh, was going to come and destroy the work of the devil. He would not come from the seed of Adam, but he would come from the seed of the woman. But now we must take a time to jump forward 10 generations to Noah. 
As we arrive at Noah, we need to learn a couple more Hebrew words that will help us. There are two different words that the Hebrew language uses when applying a covenant to someone. When God first creates a covenant, it says that he would cut a covenant. This is probably in relation to the fact that every time a covenant was being made, there was sacrifices taking place nearby. This is the Hebrew word karath. It is to cut a covenant. So the first application of a covenant, there is always the word karath, to cut a covenant. But often in the Bible, the covenant that is made will then later be applied to either the same person or to another person or group of people. When God passes on a covenant promise, the Bible does not use the word karath. He does not say that he cuts a covenant, but it uses the word kum. This is usually translated in English as saying that God establishes a covenant. So let me give you a brief example. Up in Genesis chapter 15, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. He begins a covenant. He starts a covenant. He creates a covenant with Abraham. But later, two chapters later, in Genesis 17, he comes back and it says that he establishes the covenant with Abraham. This is not a new covenant. It is the same covenant being reiterated and expounded upon. And then later, after Abraham, God establishes that covenant, it says, with Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. And then he establishes that covenant with Jacob in Genesis 28. So why do I bother bringing up this linguistic distinction that most people probably just don't care about? Because when we begin to explore the covenant that God made with Noah, it's important to see that God does not one but two things here. First, in Genesis chapter 6, God establishes a covenant with Noah. Genesis six seventeen through 18. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. So this is an establishment of an already existing covenant. This is why I personally believe that there is a covenant that was made prior to Noah. And when he says this, he says that this will take place, the establishment of this will take place before entering the ark. So he is not talking about what happens after they exit. The question is, what is that pre-existing covenant and what would God be establishing to Noah? I believe that God is applying the promise that the seed of the woman was going to now be coming through the line of Noah. God did not wipe out everyone on earth. If he had, his promise that he made to Adam and Eve and to that serpent would have failed. If he would have just killed everyone, then God would have made himself to be a liar. Rather, God preserved one family and he promised to fulfill that promise through them. Then God sent a flood to judge the world with continent-shattering brutality. This was the most terrifying and deadly event that ever happened from a physical standpoint on this planet. After After the flood came to an end, though, God cut a covenant with Noah. There's something new taking place here. This is a covenant of patience. When I was growing up, I had a Nintendo Entertainment System, the original kind, at my grandma's house. And when we would go there, we would just play these silly little games. And I not only wanted to win, I wanted to win perfectly. I wanted to have the perfect score or never once fall in the pit with Mario or whatever. So what would happen is every time I would make a mistake or my guy would explode or something, I would just reach up and press the little 
reset button. And I would do that over and over and over until finally, usually, I would just quit in frustration. But God promised that even though the world was going to return to a place full of wickedness, just like it was before the flood, he would not simply press the reset button over and over and over. He would not send another flood to restart creation. And unlike me, God never quits. Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 through 22 says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now get the picture here. He's saying, I won't destroy the earth because I know man is evil. From the very beginning. In other words, I know I didn't get rid of evil. It's still there in their heart from the time they're born. But, he continues and says, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Then in the next chapter, God establishes that same covenant far beyond just Noah. We see in Genesis chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth who is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The promise was made for all people who would come after Noah. And it even says all the animals. It was the, God was promising to creation. I'm not going to do this to you again. But there is an expiration date that exists on this covenant. We see in Genesis chapter 8, what we read a few minutes ago, it says, while the earth remains, this will be true. But as we see later this morning, this covenant will find its conclusion with Christ. There's much more that we could say about Noah, and I would love to. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But now it's time for us to move forward to our next covenant. We went from Adam to Noah, 10 generations. Now we're going to go from Noah, 10 generations forward, to Abraham. Outside of Jesus... Abraham might be the most important person who has ever lived, not because of his own greatness, but because of the greatness of the promises that God made to him. The covenant that God made with Noah was broad, and it encompassed all people that came after him. When God said, I'm making these promises with you, Noah, and I establish it with you and your children and everyone who comes from you and all the creatures on this planet, I am promising this to everyone who comes after Now he makes something very specific and he narrows down the promise to Abraham and to his offspring. Specifically, I want you to notice the three promises that resonate throughout the covenant or to ask ask the question that we asked at the beginning. We're going to see who gets what. First, we see that God promises Abraham offspring. Or more literally, like I mentioned earlier, the Greek word here is he promises him a seed. Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 through 6 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, which is Abraham. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we clearly see the promise, number one, is that Adam would have a son. God literally changes his name, Genesis chapter 17. 
So his name would be Abraham, the father of many nations. And he, he had to wait for years before this would take place. Decades, maybe. And what happens when Abraham goes and introduces himself to somebody he doesn't know? Hi, what's your name? I'm Abraham. What's your name? I'm the father of many nations. Oh, where are they? Where are your kids? Where are your children? Why aren't they flocking around you? They're coming. It's coming. God's going to give it to me. And Abraham believed the promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God did not give him the answer until his body was, as it says in Hebrews, literally as good as dead. He was a hundred years old, but God promised him a seed and God gave it to him. But God not only promised a seed, he also promised a nation. We see this promise in Genesis 17, 4 through 7. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be or Abram, but shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This promise was initially fulfilled as the nation of Israel grew and became established as a people who were called to represent God, but was not done, God was not done fulfilling this promise to them. He also promised them a place which is the land, Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now there is a threefold promise at play. God promised to give a seed and a nation and a land, or if you prefer alliteration, he promised a person and a people and a place. And we see God fulfilled the natural, physical fulfillment of those promises to Isaac, his seed, Israel, his nation, and Canaan, his land. However, as we're going to see, those promises have much grander fulfillments than Abraham could have ever possibly anticipated. So we move now to our next covenant, roughly 430 years later. This is the most famous covenant in the Old Testament. This covenant is called the covenant of Moses, or as it is most often called, even by the New Testament authors, the law. We're not going to be spending much time here this morning, and we're not going to do that because next Sunday is going to be dedicated specifically and only to focusing on how the Christian should view the Old Covenant law. But for now, there are a few simple quick things that I want to zoom in on today. The covenant that is made at Sinai is very much unlike what was happening when God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham's covenant was not conditional in any way. God guaranteed that everything in it would come to pass. God actually promised by his own name that these things will take place. Now, when you do a covenant, what happens is you cut pieces of animals apart. You take an animal and you literally cut it in half from nose to tail, and then you fold its pieces over, and it fills the middle with blood, which is what they would call the valley of the shadow of death, and then you walk through it barefoot, and you would say with the person you're making the promise to, if this promise is broken, do this to me. 
Now, who, bro- who walked through the, the pieces with Abraham? We find in Genesis chapter 15 that God put Abraham into a trance and God himself walked through. And it shows these, the, the burning furnace and the, and the boiling pot, right? Why does God use these two pieces of imagery? I have no clue. But it is God walking through the pieces with God. Who is guaranteeing and ratifying this covenant? It's not Abraham. Who is responsible for fulfilling this covenant? It's not Abraham. It is God alone who will do this. That is not what is taking place, however, when we look at Sinai. The covenant that was being made at Sinai was one that the people were required to keep. The covenant that God made with Moses was also different in that it is not established forever in the same way. It was for a particular people for a particular time. It was not a once-for-all declaration. It was not guaranteed in the same way. Instead, this covenant came with many conditions. The summary of the conditions is known as what we would call the Ten Commandments, and it is sometimes called the Decalogue. Specifically, the law came with covenant blessings if you keep these things, and covenant curses if you fail to keep these things. And we're going to dig much more into that next week, but I will say very simply, nobody kept them. Not a single person ever fulfilled them. So every single person who was ever under that law was worthy of the curses found in that law because the law was never able to change the heart of a person. It was never able to bring salvation to a person. There are two ways of reading the Bible. One is to read the Old Testament and study the Old Testament and learn the Old Testament and overlay it across the New Testament and read all of these Old Testament commands into the New Testament. There's another way to read it, which I believe is accurate, by going to the New Testament and reading all of your understanding of who Christ is into the Old Testament. I want to give you a quick story. When I was in college, this was my first semester of college, um, I was in Neosho College in Kansas, and I was in a speech class, and for some reason in this class they required us to take a test determining what religion we most affiliated with. Not just with our words, but in, according to our beliefs. And so what I did was I filled out this test, and it would do this thing. It was a computer thing where if based on your answers of one, uh, one set of questions, it would give you specific questions to drill down deeper into what your beliefs are according to those answers. When the test came back, it came back saying that I was 97.7% Jewish and 94% Christian, Protestant. I was more in line with the understanding of the Old Covenant law than I was in terms of my understanding of Christ, even according to a test given by a secular bureau of some sort. What I want you to understand is when the Bible speaks about the Old Testament, when the New Testament speaks about the Old, it always does so through the lens of Jesus. When Jesus is walking with those two men on the road to Emmaus, he is teaching them about himself from the Old Testament. He is reading himself into it. He is showing you, this is me. I was always there. You just didn't see it. And then when we get to Paul over and over and over, what Paul is doing is he is clarifying the fact that this is all about Jesus and always has been. Paul is saying that the law and the covenants are all about Christ. For example, he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, the very commandment that promised, uh, that promised life proved to be death to me. What promise is he talking about? In context, he's talking about the law. The law promised to give me life if I would obey it, but it brought death because I couldn't obey it. And then he says again in 2 Corinthians 3, 3 through 6, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, 
written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, I want to pause and just give you an idea of what's going on here. Paul is basically beginning here to say, the law is written on tablets of stone, but there is something in you that is deeper. What is What has taken place with you is a spirit act that God has worked in your heart. And then he continues, verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us as sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. They are ministers of the new covenant, but not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the spirit gives life. What is he talking about? These are words, the tablets of stone, the letter of the law. These are references to the 10 commandments and the other commandments of the old covenant. And he says that their result is that they kill you. But spoiler alert, it says the new covenant gives life or consider Romans chapter four, verses 13 through 15 for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. For if it is the adherents of the law who who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is where there is no law, there is no transgression. What is going on here? He's saying, listen, the law brings wrath to you. If it was by the law that you become saved, then none of you have any hope. Then there is no heir of the promise if it is by the law. So why did God give the law? Well, if you want to know the answer to that, you need to come next Sunday. But for now, we just don't have the time to dig in. So we need to jump forward and consider more about the next covenant, which is the covenant with David. We find this covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is directly following David's move of the capital into Jerusalem. They have set up this new city on a hill. there to be the light to many nations. And here they set up the kingdom. And David says, I'm living in a palace. And, and, and where is God? His house is a little tent. It's the tabernacle. I want to build a house for him. So he reaches out to Nathan. He begins deciding what are we going to do about this and talking to him about desiring to build a house for God. And God comes and says, I'm not going to allow you to build a house for me. I promise to build a house for you. What's amazing about this is the fact that God covenants with a man who was greatly sinful and who God knew was going to fall in many ways. Yet, God made a covenant with this man and promised him just like he did with Abraham. And he says, 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 12, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He will make you a house, David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring or your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So God, in this, we see that God promises a seed and a kingdom and a land, but there is something that God adds in this covenant that was existing previously, but is now evident and very clear that God is not only going to give a seed and a kingdom and a land, he is also going to give a specific king who would rule over that. God has narrowed down the line of his seed, not only taking it from Adam to Noah, right? 
And then from Noah, he goes to Abraham, eliminating everyone else from the the scope of world history. And then he goes down even deeper, finding one man within all the people of Israel and says, now the promised king is going to come from your line, David. So God has promised that this king is going to rule and he is going to reign. And then we see down in verse 16, it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But God has promised that his king shall reign on David's throne forever. We're not yet at the end of the covenants. There is one more, one greater, one better than all of the rest. We see the rumblings of it start to arise early in the prophets. And many different people have little glimpses of what this is going to look like. But at the time when Israel could literally not have been farther from God, the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and gave a sneak preview of what was coming in the new covenant. He says in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36 sheds a little bit more light on what this will look like. It says, I will take the nations from, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there's a promise that this law, this new covenant, is very different from what was going on in the old covenant. Instead of being an external regulation, rather it is an internal drive written on your very heart by God to pursue Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to cut a new covenant. He came to be the sacrifice that would ratify that covenant in his own blood. The serpent was promised that the seed or offspring of the woman would come and destroy him. And at the fullness of time, what happened? God sent Jesus, his own son, born of the woman, born of the Virgin Mary, born from the seed of the woman to carry out that promise and jesus said at the last supper luke twenty two twenty, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood my death that is the new covenant for you my death that is the sacrifice taking place that is the ratification of the new covenant but how will the promise see promises of seed and kingdom and land and throne and judgment all be fulfilled now i'm going to be dedicating the final sermon in this entire series to answering those questions more deeply. But allow me to close this sermon today with a couple short versions. As I do, I want you to see much more than theology here. I want you to see the glory of our God. I want you to see the greatness of our God who promises and fulfills. The one who made a will and now he is applying it to us. The one who loved. This morning Jacob started our our, our service by talking about how God is good and God loves you. 
we have a lot to be thankful for. And as we see this, I want you to be richly encouraged by what Christ has done. The seed is fulfilled by Christ because he is the seed of promise. Now, there's much more to what I'm saying here, but simply put, we'll look at what we read in our reading earlier that James did so well. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or his seed. It does not say to his offsprings or to his seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And then he helps us here by putting together the pieces and telling us who is Christ. What is the promised seed that was promised to Abraham? Paul tells us the promise was that it was for Christ. He is the heir and he is the recipient of these promises. The seed is fulfilled in Christ because he is that seed of promise. So all of the promises are actually made to Christ. He is the one who is going to gain all things. He is the ultimate seed of the offspring who is to inherit all of the promises. But what about the nation? How is that fulfilled? Well, it goes far beyond national Israel. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says, And if you are in Christ, or if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, if you are saved, the promises of Abraham are for you. The people of God is not limited to a nation with borders and boundaries. This is how Peter describes every Christian in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are a Christian, this promise is for you. What I want you to understand about this is when Peter opens his book, 1 Peter, he writes to a massive group of people. He says this is to all those who are in the dispersion. And then he lists this incredibly long list of different places. And he says to them that you are a chosen race. He's not speaking about an ethnic group of people. He is speaking about the fact that you are a race of people in Christ. Your primary identity and mine is not to be found in our earthly heritage, but found in Christ. And when he says that, he is telling you that is because you are part of a royal family. You are part of a royal priesthood that exists, a holy nation that exists, not as a physical nation on this earth, but one that transcends physical borders and boundaries. So if you are a Christian, the promise is for you. Abraham was a sojourner and a stranger in the land. He never actually ended up having claim to the places, these places where he wandered. Interestingly enough, that's exactly how the New Testament speaks to us about this physical world. We are not searching for an earthly, natural, physical fulfillment of the promises of the land for us. Rather, we are doing precisely what Abraham was doing as he is described in Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he do that? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words... He wasn't super interested in the physical land. His interest was a city that has foundations built by God himself. He was interested in the fulfillment of being with God. We are to be like that. We are instead instead to find our rest in Christ, not a physical place. He is our refuge. He is our rest. And we are promised a new heavens and a new earth in the future. But we have this promise with us now. 
As promised, there is much more to come on these issues over the next couple sermons, but I want to close with two final observations. First, for those who are saved, for those who are in the room who are Christians, I hope that you are realizing that a proper reading of these covenants should give you immense joy and see how God has been just so gracious to you. It's possible to read the Old Testament like a legal document that has no relation to you. It is possible to read the Bible in such a way that you're just, you just don't care. It's just dry. But if you see this as a will with your name on it, these promises made by God that apply to you directly, it becomes so much more rich and so much more alive. God is promising goodness and good things to you. So we should not be reading this with such a drab attitude. We should be reading them as heirs of the promise, promises that are life-giving and freeing. Lastly, I want to speak for a moment to those who are not in Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the promise that God made to Noah was that he was not going to send a flood. It was a, it was a promise of patience, a covenant of patience. He's not going to destroy the earth like that again until the world comes to an end. But there is judgment for everyone who rejects the good news. That will either happen at the moment you stop breathing, which you have no promise of when that will be, or that will happen when Christ returns at the end of the age. Jesus is the king who rules. He is the king who rules not only with grace and mercy, but also the king of justice. Every sin will be atoned, whether by him or by those who have committed the sin. So as promised... We finished every one of these big picture sermons in Revelation. We'll see Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a terrifying statement. God is a God of not only perfect mercy and grace, but also of perfect wrath. And if you are not a Christian, the promises we are talking about of Abraham do not apply to you in your current state, but they can. What must happen for these promises to be applied to you? You must believe. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So if you hear my words today, if you hear these scriptures today and you believe the promise of God, you will likewise be counted as righteous. What promise do I mean? I mean that even though you were dead in your sins, God sent his perfect holy son to die for sinners like you and me. He sent Jesus to fulfill all the requirements where you and I have failed. He came to give hope to the hopeless and life to the spiritually dead. He came to give freedom from sin and to break the bondage that the devil has over us. He, he who knew no sin became sin for us and died on that cross so that all who would ever believe would become heirs of this promise. And now he rules and he reigns as the king of the heaven. And if you will repent of your sins and believe in his grace, you will be saved. So if you want to know about that and how you can be an heir of these promises, I would love to tell you. I would love to speak to you about that. Please do not go without speaking to myself or one of the pastors here at the church. We love you. 
And the most important thing that you can do with your life is trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all of your promises. We thank you that even though today was just a very introductory and cursory glance at these rich doctrinal truths, we pray that you would please give us strength and fortitude to understand them. Lord, I recognize that there are many here that this might be very new to them. I pray, God, that you would give me clarity as I teach them and shepherd them through the questions that they might have. I ask, Lord, that you would please allow these things to be not quickly forgotten, that they would not be moved on from very rapidly, but instead we would apply them, that we would study them, that we would learn them, that we would know them, not just to be an Old Testament rules lawyer or so that we might be more intelligent than the next Christian, but that we might love you and that we might read your word as the promise that you have made and that we might see your glory and we might give you honor and praise. Lord, I pray that you would help our church to be one that is strong in knowledge, but also in depth of love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.